History and the current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4 6 states, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4 7 states, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. With all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also you can join us at abibitumi.com that's a-b-i-b-i-t-u-m-i.com they stream from Ghana and catch the live stream there or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices TuneIn is a free app in that TuneIn search engine just type in time for an awakening there you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an Awakening Radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In the Facebook search engine, just type in time for an Awakening Radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on, on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. 7.07 in this, uh, I guess it's a semi-spring Sunday afternoon, uh, Sunday edition of Time for the Awakening. Glad to have everybody with us. Our guest this evening, journalist and professor of critical race sociology at Xavier University in Louisiana, Dr. Charity Clay is with us this evening. She wrote an interesting article, How the 1619 Project Celebrates an Anti-African Black American Identity. It ought to be an interesting conversation with her. Looking forward to it. 
And again, you can join the conversation with a question or comment for our guest by joining 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. 
history tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. And before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Uh, oh, I'm doing. I'm doing fine. Hey, look, it was chilly outside. I don't know what you. I don't know what you was. You know, partially spring and all that. But you know, <laughs> the interesting thing was, I did the buds coming out once again because it happened before it got warm, right? And the buds on the, you know, the tree you walk by the, these here branches and you see buds. Then it got cold. I don't know what's going on, but I had to put on. You know, I had to suit up. You know, to be walking around out there. Yeah. Well, but, you know, it's it, it's it's something. But I'm looking forward um, to our our discussion, as always, with, with uh, Dr. Clay. Uh, I think she's helping us, well, at least helping me, and I hope the, hopefully the time for awakening audience. We have to be centered, Elliot, in what project we're engaged in, what project we're investigating, and what project we're representing. And sometimes it gets difficult with the language, our English language, and what people are projecting in our politics. It, especially now, it seems like they're blending a lot of things. And um, I think in her article and in our discussion, we'll get to maybe um, help us um, be clear what side of this here um, we're on in relationship to that. So I'm looking forward to the discussion. And Richard, these conversations are happening all the time. You talk about you know, when you take the different groups, and especially when you uh, have groups of, of young folks or even uh, uh, college students on tours, and, and you talk with them about the, the historical exhibits and the the interest that's there. Mm-hmm. Our people have always mm-hmm. been interested in our struggle here, but we see now that there's certain things happening here that's questionable, I'll put it that way. Um, I really enjoyed reading uh, uh, Dr. Clay's article, and uh and uh, hopefully the listening audience will get a lot out of, out of her being with us tonight. Uh, our guest this evening, journalist, professor of critical race sociology at Xavier University in Louisiana, Dr. Charity Clay is with us this evening. Dr. Clay, how are you? I'm great. Thank you all for having me. I'm glad to have you on Time for an Awakening with myself and Brother Richard. Dr. Clay, before we get started and uh because this conversation might go in a, in a couple of different areas, uh, but it's going to be centered around your your uh, the piece that you wrote. Before we get started, talk about uh, the critical race theory sociology that you teach at Xavier. Tell us a little bit about it and yourself. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, I thank you for calling me a journalist. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, I am a professor. The the use of the term critical race. Uh, studies or critical race theory is something I'm actually moving away from. 
Um, I have, you know, I was trained um, in the ideas of critical race theory that were introduced by Derek Bell, right? And I think that currently the way people are using the term critical race theory is so far removed from his intent um, that, you know, without clear delineation of what I mean, it can, it can get really misconstrued. Um, but when I use the term critical race theory, I'm looking at one specific idea, and that's the idea of racial realism. And racial realism is an idea that that uh, Professor Derrick Bell came up with that said that as, you know, African-descended people in the United States, we need to realize that racism in the United States is permanent, right? That it's so embedded in the fabric, it's so fundamental to the foundation of this country that it's something that we'll never get rid of. Um, and that was uh, a realization he came to uh, around the, the 80s and the 90s when he started looking back at civil rights and realizing that the legislation that was passed in the 60s, that's the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Act, and the 68 Fair Housing Act really didn't do anything to create any material change for the conditions of black people in the schools, in our neighborhoods, in our health outcomes, et cetera. So, you know, he, after doing some research, kind of re- um, articulated his position on civil rights and, and saying that, you know, it's so that the racism is not, it's not just simple prejudice. It's not just simple discrimination. It is the fabric that binds the United States together. And that as, uh, that as African people, as black people here, we need to realize that there is no way to eradicate it. Mm. Um, the reason that, that it frames studies is because when you understand the United States as an imperialist empire that's built on exploitation and racial oppression, you operate within it differently, right? So the intention was to say, hey, what can we do if we stop fighting for an equality that will never come, right? So how can we change the way we engage this system as African-descended people, understanding that there is no opportunity for the equality that, you know, some of our forefathers fought so hard for, Um so and so that's how I teach sociology. I start off teaching students that when you look at societies, they're based in an ideology. The ideology in the United States is whiteness, right? And and the ideology is what becomes foundation to our laws and our culture, right? So when we talk about the school system or the religious system or the housing system or the education system, any system, I start with teaching students how legally it was founded in giving whites very um, unfair individual and structural advantages and looking from that lens. Dr. Clay, <laughs> I think you kind of started the conversation before, I did, and I'm glad you did. But let me, let me, I, I want to read the first uh, sentence or I guess a prelude to the article. Uh, and for the Folks that don't have it, I'll get a chance to put it in the chat room when we take our first break. Um, but if, if the folks are near their computers, they can go to uh, the Black Agenda Report dot com and, uh, and and be able to uh, to access the article. But, but I'll put it in the chat room for some of the folks that want to uh, uh, get a hold of it from uh, from our site here. Uh, l- let me read this first paragraph. It says black people must differentiate between pride and self and their ancestors and any attempt to forge connections with a nation that continues to oppress. And you associate this with the, the uh, series of essays 
and also the documentary series, the 1619 Project. I, I, you know, I, I saw the documentary series. I think at one time it was four parts, but now it's up to six. Uh, oh, wow. Richard uh, uh, is familiar with the docu- uh, the uh, the S series of essays because I don't have that. But I, what I want to first do, I want to start out with Richard because I think the essays might be a little more uh, uh, pertinent to the discussion, at least early on. I'm going to infuse some of the documentaries because uh, I think all of it is important. I, and I really want to get your insights on this as a person that's, on the college campuses, uh, teaching minds of a certain age. And Dr. Clay, you look like you're a millennial yourself. So, um, all of this, all of this is, is, uh, is, is really key to, uh, our people dealing with this because it's a lot of propaganda going on. And I think that we, we really got to understand because it's, it's mask in our history. And if we don't look deeper, then we will miss the boat. That, that, that's just how I'm framing it. And I know you're going to frame it a lot better than me. But, uh, Richard, I want to pass the mic to you because I want you to start out with some of the essays. And, and, uh, and uh, let's uh, pick Dr. Charity's brain here. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 that's, and, and that's a good, good way to start the framing uh, about, and hopefully you don't mind, Dr. Um, Dr. Clay, that uh, about picking your brain or at least getting some feedback is in relationship to how I'm processed. Because we, we did in a discussion where we, we went through the book, you know, and um, I have my challenges, you know. Uh, it's not a challenge, you know, challenge, as I, I said, I, it's no problem we have in these two. I think history shows that we have two different views, uh, social views, or politi- political philosophies, black folks in, in relationship to our captivity. So my, my, my think is on the assumption that you, um, did review the book and you, um, did the article. Um, the thought that came to, the question that came to mind is, um, do you see a difference in how the article, the series of articles that were put in the book and the different topics that they, cause it was more, more verse topics. I didn't see the series. Um, do you see a difference in the, the intent? Of the two, I do. Um, I think that the sixteen nineteen project, uh, the New York Times collection of essays, was written around the um, year of return. It was written around. Um, unfortunately, the United States is because of you know racial capitalism. It's all about branding. Right. So in 2019, branding conversations of the year of return, uh, the United States wasn't going to allow the diaspora or the continent to have a monopoly on that conversation. Um, So I think in an attempt to, again, place America in the center of the conversation, um, the essays were written in a way that for me, brought up more conversations about what does it mean to be black? Um, what are different generational issues? What are different topical issues that we're wrestling with as we acknowledge or celebrate uh, this 400 years? Um, so it for me, the essays offered more opportunity to open conversations. Um, 
then, but in 2023, right, um, the conversation for the films or the documentary series is centered around reparations mm. and the reparations discussion because it's fundamentally fundamentally about land and other um, rights or entitlements. It shifted into the project of how you know, quote unquote, black people can become indigenous enough to claim reparations. So I think the framing, um, because of the timing of these projects, is is the fundamental difference, and the type of conversations that are had around them is different for sure. And, and I noticed that, uh, and I'm using this opportunity, and you'll see. You know, my thing is that things pop in my mind, and uh, you know, for us to bounce off, because as you say, um, with the the moment of real ret- year return, there's also and branding. Um, United States positionality as, in relationship to racial capitalism as positioning itself to the continent because it hurt my heart. It hurt my mind to see, um, and I had a, I had a good one, uh, uh, Miss Ann Pelosi go, <laughs> go to West Africa with her little kente cloth around her neck and and the Negroes of the CBC, and I apologize to everybody out there, but that's just the way it came out. It's, I mean, like it was that the posit, but it was positioning when we see what happens later of the Africans that are being, you know, of heads of states that are being brought here, and now even now, uh, Sheikh um Vice President Kamala is over there, you know, that, that you know from 1619 to now, and then as you say um, with the program, so. It, it, it had an agenda, um, and the, and the text is the prelude, more expensive as you say, but it seemed to have been descriptive. Two two um, pieces out of the text, articles out of the text that um, you know, and this uh, that struck me: uh, um, Nicole Hannah Jones dealing with democracy, and um, you know, and this and, and it was one section, and I just wanted to get your feedback in relationship to the nativism that they're developing, which I think we'll get to you you, in your article and dealing with reparations. It seems that the the development of this nativism that has nothing to do with the continent, right? Or, or, or liberation project. Um, Where she says that, at the time, one-fifth of the population within the 13 colonies struggled under a brutal system of racial slavery that through the decades would be transformed into an institution unlike anything that existed in the world. I thought that was telling to be very, you know, to be very specific about if we believe that and believe that in relationship to democracy before. Chattel slavery was not conditional but racial. It was heritable and permanent, not temporary, meaning generations of black people were born into it and passed their enslaved status on to their children. Enslaved people were not recognized as human beings. Now, when you you gave your um, why you're shifting from critical race theory to critical race sociology, that you raised this point of how um, you know, Baba Bell was making that racial capitalism. It is inherent within the American project. Um, do you think that that would have helped from what that and where you're coming from? 
how does that line up to black people nativism as it relates to democracy? Is it the same democracy that the founders, if the structure is so inherent within the system? The, and this is the this is where it all falls apart for me, right? If we acknowledge that the laws fundamentally intended to prevent Africans and their descendants from ever being considered human, much less citizens, then any discussion about foundational democracy did not include Africans and their descendants. So to try to, you know, go back and use that to somehow make it apply to us, um, it, it falls apart, right? Um, and that's why that's why I don't like the conversations. And that's why for me, racial realism, um, it, like I say, I'm, I'm moving away from associating with these ideas of critical race theory and just uh, aligning with racial realism. Because if you, and it's not just the constitution, if you read, um, notes in the state of Virginia, or if you read the conversations that the quote-unquote founding fathers were having, um, it's very clear that the way they were trying to create the United States as an empire did not make space for including Africans and their descendants as anything but property, right? So to now use those same documents to make them mean things that they never intended, um, I don't want to say it's it's a fool's errand, but um, I believe it's a I, I believe it's a futile fight. Which you know, which raises you know the other because um, I picked these two these two um, uh, article you know in the in the text um, just to open up towards towards your you know, again towards what you um, wrote in the uh, um, Black Agenda report because of the now social formation that's being developed. And, and the other one was around the church. And the reason why I figured um, the church, because it was a social infrastructure, a part of a social, like the core of the social infrastructure um, that we created in spite of, um, you know, um, the racial and how it was the organizing mechanism. Right. But in that, um, and that was, you know, Athena um, Butler, one thing, and she was defining the tradition, especially looking at the black 19th century churches. And she says that it, um, the churches and the leadership included social uplift, liberation, pragmatism, and black nationalism. So I'll phrase the question like this, because um, I'm going to pass it back to uh, Elliot, because it ties to the point in your article. Um, in relationship to focusing on black nationalism specifically, because it was the, it seemed that our political philosophy recognizing, and even at that moment, that we would have to build an infrastructure where we stay here or go someplace else that would be uniquely ours, right? So my question is, in this moment that they are, this that series, the, the the six parts, four part series, is there coming from in your mind? Is that setting up for a nationalist formation, or just a nativist American formation? Is it a separatist, you know, um, understanding that because race is the basis of the the, the philosophical and 
and the statutory basis of this society that we need to create our own um, infrastructure, even if we don't go. So it's a nat- black nationalist or or nationalist uh, Ethiopianism here, or is it that we are Americans? And as a part of your article says um, that um, we want to enjoy the benefits of being a part of a dominant group um, and the power to subjugate others combined with the freedom from accountability. Um, is, is, is this what we're into now, uh, or at least what they're positioning now in this branding, that we're just supposed to be nativist Americans, not necessarily a national formation unto ourselves because of American social structure? Um, I think the, the danger of the series is that there's enough in it that for groups who are already aligning in certain ways, they can take what was in the 1619 project and use it to serve their own um, agendas or missions, right? So right now, in reality, there are not a lot of actual um, nationalist movement. Now, now, I think that the designation or the difference you're making between nationalists and nativists is nationalist within the context of understanding that Black people in the United States need our own Black institutions, infrastructures, communities, etc. Whereas nativism is more claimed that us as quote-unquote Black people are native to the United States. Is that the distinction? Yes. Yes. Yep. Uh, I think the issue is that the language um, and the framing of the specifically the 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 documentary series, the docu series, um, it feeds right into existing nativist conversations, um, and unfortunately, it does that by presenting nationalism as irrelevant, right? And I say that because in the series, everything that Black people are credited with is tied to American democracy or Americanism or these foundational ideas of what it means to be American. So everything that, you know, whether it's the series about music, everything that's saying, you know, these are things that we have contributed are tethered to this project of us being native to American in a way that's like proving to white people that we have done just as much as them in creating this country. Therefore we deserve, you know, like I said, the benefits of whiteness. The problem with that is that white people know exactly what we've contributed to this country because they used us to build their wealth. So it's not like, you know, um, white people don't understand, right? There's a, there's two different types of whiteness, right? There's rank and file whites who are the masses who need to be ignorant in their privilege, right? Because the supremacy of whiteness is the myth that has conditioned them to, to fight for this ideal. But the reality is that elite whites are using rank and file whites to maintain their control. Elite whites know very well the value of Africans and indigenous people because they've strategically and systematically used our labor, used our presence, used our bodies to build their wealth. So there's no need to try to prove to elite whites the value of black people because they know our, I mean, if you look at manifest, 
the value of black people in, in some places was worth more than a house, mm. right? All the labor that was done, both not just um, agricultural or plantation labor, but the majority of industrial labor and domestic labor in this country were done by Africans and their descendants. So this idea that if we just prove, you know, that we've done enough or what we've contributed to the country, white people will accept this as equal, um, it fundamentally eliminates the possibility of using those resources and gifts and talents for our own as, as the way nationalists would want us to do, right? So I think it lends itself more to these ideas of nativism because it's fundamentally saying, does this not make us American? Does this not make us equal? Does this not give us the claim that we quote unquote belong here? And do we not are because of that, aren't we owed something when we talk about reparations, um, you know, um, because of that free labor that you extracted, um, like, like it was some kind of, uh, you know, we had a bargain and you reneged on the bargain. Um, and now I'm coming, you know, to get paid for something you reneged on compared to we weren't even in a, 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 a contract with each other. Um, right. And that's in that sense. But um, Ellie, I, 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 I think that's where I wanted to like um, start in relationship to the um, text um, because I thought those two pieces brought out, um, you know, the distinction and, you know, and, and, and going to um, Dr. Charity's, Clay, Dr. Clay's um, um, article in relationship to what later comes on as she develops this um, of the new formation um, that comes into these new identifiers, whether they are ADOS or, or FDA and whatever that we're having. So I'll, I'll leave that part to you, Elliot, because uh, uh, you, you're, you're, you, you got a better handle on it. Uh, uh, Dr. Clay, the, um, let me, let me switch over to the, uh, Wait a minute, hold on. I think that's on your end, Richard. No. I think it's on mine. This oh. One. oh, okay. Yeah, it's 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 a super Sunday, yeah. so there's a. Oh, oh excuse me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No problem. We'll, we'll, we we'll we'll get through it. Doctor Clay, before I mention, because I want to switch over to the docu series. I um saw all six parts. Um, but first I want to read the first paragraph of the article because it kind of sets up, uh, what I want to kind of get your feelings on. Uh, you wrote, there's always been something about black people wrapped in the American flag that has made me uneasy. For me, it's a symbolism indicative of the intimate bonds we have with our oppressor. And the way it results in a longing to be accepted by those whose survival is predicated on our destruction. So when I heard of the 1619 Project, I immediate, I had immediate reservations. Um, I don't think those words could be put any better. I did also. When I seen the documentary series, the first one based in, uh, was entitled Democracy. You know, it's always something good when our history is exposed 
and not necessarily exposed to Europeans. Just like you said, they know what has happened to our people. They they were instrumental in doing it. But when it's exposed to a lot of our people, because some of our people, both young and old, are unaware of any of it, to be honest. But when you tell a history and don't fully give the whole picture, that's just like not saying it at all. A couple of things I want to pull out of that first initial uh documentary uh, or the series uh, entitled democracy when they talked about uh when the uh during the british occupation when the 13 colonies were here and when the initial war of 1776 basically broke out and it talked about our ancestors wanting to get involved but the way they explained this it really didn't give you a total picture of what was going on. It gave, if, if you're a novice of that history, it'll give you the impression that our ancestors wanted to fight in the beginning to help form this democracy. Later on, and I, I know you wanted to talk about that, but later on, this was re- what really took me uh, for a loop. Later on, when they talked about Lincoln, and the meeting that he had with some of my ancestors, the first meeting that he had with blacks at the White House. And he brought them <laughs> in and told them that he basically wanted them out of the country. And our ancestors basically responded, according to the professor, and I forgot the professor's name. Uh, no, this is our country. We built it and we're going to be here. And then they quoted Douglas saying something similar. <laughs> Now, Douglas's remarks was in 1849. This meeting took place in 1862, even though Douglas wasn't invited to the White House. So that gave our people a half impression that even when Lincoln met with our ancestors, uh, that our people wanted to be here. They wanted to be a part of what was going on. And that's not historically accurate at all. I, I did want to share excerpts of that meeting, a couple of paragraphs. But before I do that, Dr. Clay, go into that, because that really troubled me. When you present our history in this fashion, who are you doing this for? You cannot be doing it for our people to really understand what happened. It has to be a sanitized version for some odd reason. And I'm just I'm just saying it that way just to to get your opinion on it. But to talk about no, it from your perspective. I think so. I chose to uh, assign the episodes, uh, the first just the first couple episodes to my students. I'm teaching a class this semester called Explorations in Transatlantic Blackness. Um, and it's just really looking at how um, whiteness has shaped what it means to be black. Um, all throughout, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic. So, so I wanted, as we start having this conversation, I wanted to, uh, I wanted my students to watch it and see what they picked up on. Um, and I have some sharp students, right? I have some sharp students that that were that said, well, the only people that were invited were, you know, free black people who had some wealth, 
So, of course, if you are free and you have wealth in the United States, you have a, a stake to claim in staying. But that that um, small minority did not represent the consensus of the majority of African descended people in the United States at that time. Um, I think one of the problems just in general, and this is me as a professor and a person who loves learning, is that we are not taught to challenge a singular narrative, right? So when we are introduced to some information, we take that as a whole picture instead of immediately saying, well, let me see some other things to add color to what this person is saying instead of taking this as the whole story. So then what happens is we end up repeating things that we heard that are presented within the context of a specific agenda. Um, and this is the thing, like the 1619 Project is its own brand. There are children's books and curriculums and T-shirts and mugs around this singular narrative um, that is tied to the ways that African-descended people can not be African and instead be American. So it has to tie into the narratives of the United States that shape the country. So it has to include how we became American at these very fundamental points. So it has to talk about the Revolutionary War, has to talk about the Civil War, because those are grand moments in American history. So I think the, the logic behind that is if we present ourselves as being present and important in the major moments of American history, then we automatically include ourselves in, quote, unquote, the fabric of America. Mm -hmm. So it's like I understand the intent but it's also very destructive and damaging to, to, like you say, tell a half truth, especially to people who in this age are wanting knowledge and are unfortunately seeking out these very, you know, um, commercialized services for their introduction of who they are. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Uh, let, let me read a, a little excerpt from that meeting because just like your student said, Dr. Clay, that he was meeting with a specific group of black black people. But he wanted to get, because he had numbers, he wanted to send at least 5,000 people out of this country. Uh, they did have an initial board. They had an initial trip. And maybe we'll get to that later on. But let me, t because to describe that meeting and to give a half uh version of not only our ancestors' response, but Lincoln's proposal is unfair. Let me read just a couple of paragraphs on what Lincoln said to our ancestors at this meeting. It says, uh, see our present condition, the country engaged in war, our white men cutting one another's throats, none knowing how far it will extend, and then consider that we know to be the truth. But for your race among us, there could not be any war. Although many men engaged on either side do not care for you one way or the other. Nevertheless, I repeat, without the institution of slavery and the colored race as a basis, this war uh, could not have existed. It is better for both of us, therefore, to be separated. I know that there are free men among you who, even if they could 
uh, better their condition are not as much inclined to go out of the country as those who are being enslaved. Uh, and excuse me, who being slaves could obtain their freedom on this condition. I suppose one of the principal difficulties in the way of colonization is that the free colored man cannot see that his comfort would be advanced by it. You may believe you can live in Washington or elsewhere in the United States the remainder of your life easily, perhaps more so than you can in any foreign country. And hence, you may come to the conclusion that you may have nothing to do with the idea of going to a foreign country. This is an extremely selfish view of this case. You ought to do something to help those who are not as fortunate as yourselves. There is a willingness on the part of our people, harsh as it may, as it may be, for you free colored people to remain with us. Now, if you could give a start to white people, you could open the door for many to be made free. If we deal with those who are not free in the beginning, whose intellect are clouded by slavery, we have very poor materials to start with. If intelligent colored men such as yourself would move in this manner, uh, much might be accomplished, and it's exceedingly important of that. We have made, we have men at the beginning capable of thinking as white men and not those who have been systematically oppressed. Now, it's two things there that I, that you can grab right, right away. The one that your students said that it was a certain class of black people he was talking to. And the second one is something that's still going on to this very day. That Europeans want black people to think like white men. He, Lincoln said that then to our ancestors. We need black people to be able to think like white men. And even after that meeting was over, if some of them had a sentiment that, oh, no, we're, like, like the prof- that professor in that documentary said, oh, no, we're not going, like that was the overwhelming sentiment, that wasn't true because the men left the meeting and were able to garner s- uh, several hundred people that was ready to leave here. I think it was 450 people on that initial voyage that was sent out of this country to terrible conditions. And maybe we can get into that later. But um, those are some of the things that when I was pulling out of those documentaries that it's good that the history is explained or talked about, but when you do a half-truth or don't fully explain these situations that our people found themselves in, and fighting to get out of, you're doing our ancestors a total disservice. I just wanted to to throw that in there because uh, Lincoln wasn't doing our people any favors when he proposed this, but the, the, the overwhelming perception of Lincoln, especially if our people don't know what's going on, that Lincoln was somehow some type of friend to black people, and that's not true at all. So I, I just wanted to throw that in, uh, uh, Dr. Clay. Uh, y- your perception of not only that that meeting and our ancestors had with them, but the way it was explained by the both professors. I think, again, I think the the goal was to insert 
black people as being more important in the existing narratives rather than provide um, more truth to the stories we've already been told. Um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate um, as someone who has a greater understanding of the topics because I can see how if I didn't know any better, it would be not only easy to believe, but there is a sense of belonging or a sense of pride that can accompany the way these stories are told. Um, but it leaves out. So for me, the biggest thing that the, the documentary series leaves out is that um, the best things that Africans and their descendants um, contributed to the United States are founded in their Africanness, right? It fundamentally attempts to make it something about being in the United States that is the galvanizing force in all this genius um, that created all these quote unquote great American things. And it does it in a way where if you don't know better, again, not only can it sound believable, but it makes you quote unquote proud to be American as a black person. And I think that's, that's the most dangerous part of it um, because we're talking about um, in the, uh, you know, during the civil war, when you've already had, um, you, you've already had um, multiple attempts to establish maroon communities, right? Multi we're talking, um, we're talking about a civil war in the United States that is in a lot of ways impacted by the Haitian Revolution, right? So we have 1804 fundamentally changes the way that American slavery operates, right? So we have evidence all throughout the Americas that Africans and their descendants wanted to remain African, wanted to be free of white oppression, more so than this desire to want to be integrated. Um, and the reality is um, the uniqueness of the United States slavery project um, is why this conversation can't even be had anywhere else. There's nowhere else in the diaspora where um, this conversation exists where there was slavery, right? Because there's a, because the United States wasn't even a nation before or without the enslavement of, uh, of Africans, right? And the perpetual enslavement of their descendants through the creation of the nation state of the United States. All other nations existed before enslavement, right? Because we have to remember that when enslaved Africans were brought to what's now the United States, they were still colonies of Britain themselves, mm -hmm. right? So we don't even have the United States outside of the institution of slavery. And I think that's one of the things that makes it seem like black people should be a part of it because it doesn't exist without us. But that's not the same, right? Acknowledging that you couldn't have this empire without the contributions of my ancestors is not the same as me wanting to be a part of this empire.
And, you know, if I, if I may, Elliot, because y'all were dealing with the series about um, democracy and y'all just raised, you know, um, how Lincoln, you know, perceived um, black people to be, meaning America, Americanism as it's rated is to wash away your Africanness, right? Um, the, the, the point that, that, and, and you, and you, Dr. Um, Dr. Clay made in the article, um, by starting with 1619, it, it attaches our roots in the British American colony. So uh, it's interesting the way you contextualize that. What I get, and y'all can help me with that, whether, whether it was placed in the series, the rebellions or maroon societies, the attempts, Denmark, VC, <laughs> Matt Turner, on and on and on. And that isn't that a manifestation of the principle of democracy operating, you know, out of your own self-interest that doesn't go along with the narrative of being a native of America? Uh, That's the third question that comes to mind. And was that placed in the, was those resistance movement, liberating movements, um, which were consistent all the way up to the Civil War, from the Revolutionary War before to the Civil War, people were self-liberating themselves. Um, is that placed within that that, that narrative? <laughs> Dr. Clay? <laughs> it's not in there. <laughs> it's, it's completely absent from the, the conversation in the documentary. It's completely absent. I mean, I, won't, I, I can only stomach four of the episodes. Knowing that there are two more, I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to be able to pull myself together to, to, you know, to, you know, be engulfed by that, that (laughs) those fallacies, but it's, it's not included because the narrative is funded. Now here you, uh, you bring up an interesting point, right? Because there wasn't, there could have been an opportunity to frame even rebellions as acts of democracy, right? But they, they were like, we don't even want to, we don't even want to uh, acknowledge that there were, first of all, (laughs) one of the biggest issues that I have with the narrative is that they intentionally do not use the term African. They intentionally say enslaved people. Like the people didn't have an origin somewhere outside of the United States, right? So So there's this... Americanness that is connected to our humanity or peoplehood. Um, but with the rebellions, um, they, now here they could have, it, it, it could have been a whole episode about how, you know, quote unquote slave rebellions are example, are the greatest examples of American democracy. Um, but they didn't, they decided just not to touch it at all in the, in the, in the films. And, and the reason why I think that, you know, it's important, well, I, I make this maybe um, false connection because it was out of those self-liberating actions that people were doing, the system, the uh, under, what they call Underground Railroad, that black people um, are created to assist, a social structure that designed to assist, that two laws were put in place as a reaction to that that eventually leads to the Civil War, and that is the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793 and then the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. I think 51, 51 or 50, yeah. Those were put in place in order to try to curtail 
this effectiveness of self-liberation. So to, to, you know, and, and those, the question becomes, even if they want to put, well, did they, were they liberating themselves to be American or were they liberating themselves to, to liberate themselves? What they would make out of themselves would be something else. Um, you know, in the context of nativism or, you know, the American project, um, at least it goes to your point, Elliot, as far as being full, right? The story, our story being fully told, and then we get to make choices how we're going to deal with that compared to being just partially told, and then we're directed to, you know, someplace. Um, um, and, and, and really the other part of us is really kind of like cut off, you know, so. I just thought that was, when we brought up about democracy, um, something to interject. Dr. Clay, um, you said that the students were dealing with the first two episodes to kind of look and come back with their assessments. I want to ask you this as a black woman. The second documentary, (laughs) Race. Now, let me kind of preface it by saying this. You know, I, I really don't like a lot of the things that you see, especially on social media, where black men and black women are at each other's throats for foolish uh, systems that have created divisions in black families between black men and women. Now, I, I'll preface what I'm saying in reference to that second uh, documentary on race. Because they tried to say that Europeans came up with this um, system of race or this this uh, belief of race, and it was directed somehow at black women. And it's a constant theme in that particular documentary on race that all of this was directed at black women to the point where I think she kind of goes up until to now and the pandemic, and it talks about it talks about this, the young lady in New York that had that were pregnant with twins, and how she couldn't get the proper medical care. And the thing that was strange in that, Doctor Clay, is if you didn't know it, you thought that that woman was a single woman <laughs> raising the family. She said it was a husband there. She had a whole husband. <laughs> and both of them were middle class, so he was there. But the way she described and every the whole interview, she just talked to the the young child's mother. I, you know, it gave up the whole that whole one. It just it stunk to me the way that was presented. And I, and I just want your opinion on this as a black woman watching that. It did. <laughs> it did. It did. It did. Um, because um, one of my one of my professors uh, from grad school, Dr. Tommy Curry, he wrote a book called The Man Not, which is um, pretty powerful book in acknowledging that we generally when we talk about the atrocities of slavery and things, we don't fully acknowledge the specific gendered racial oppression that black men experience as much as we do with black women. Right. Um, you know, I have critiques and stuff of, of, of that, but I, I think the book is powerful in that way. Um, and I think again, right. It's branding right now. The United States is branding a type of 
powerful black womanhood that exists without black men that doesn't need or desire black men for success or happiness or progress, etc. Um, and it's very, unfortunately it's becoming very popular. Um, but I, and again, some of my students were able to point out there's something very wrong um, with this narrative. Um, so I provided some context. So here's the reality. The reason for one drop rules, right, is fundamentally connected to attempts to control Black women's reproductive labor and eliminate um, Black children from being able to claim paternal lineage for their slaveholding fathers, right? We understand that generally you inherit what your father owns within the context of enslavement when you have white men who are systematically raping black and indigenous women, right. To increase um, for within the context of slavery to increase their wealth. Right. We have to acknowledge that when the slave trade was abolished, there became this one, there was an internal slave trade, right. Um, From the East coast to the deep South, which is very important. But additionally, we have this systematic way of white men impregnating black women or African women specifically because if you classify these people as enslaved, now they become property instead of heirs. So there, and this is the problem with only telling half of the story. The reason, right, that for African descended people, our race was determined by our mother's race was fundamentally economic. You know, the the savage barber, you know, the barbarism and the savagery that that white men do in the name of um, wealth is where that comes from. So there is a fundamental connection between the ideas of one drop rules and an attempt to control black women's reproductive labor, right? That is accurate. But what it doesn't acknowledge is that is something that while black women physically experience that, right? There's also breeding between black men and black women that was forced that also caused trauma in families. Um, and there's, you know, there's also um, breeding or, or relationships that white women forced black men during slavery to have, yes. which is a which is a whole of the story. There's a, a pretty good book out called They Were Her Property, which fundamentally focuses on white women and their experiences as slave owners. Um, but I think that the choice not to acknowledge that gendered racial oppression in the United States Offer, operates differently, but it's equally damaging in the way it treats black men and the way it treats black women what is an attempt to further that divide yes. um, between us. I, I fun, That was one of the first things I noticed. The second thing that bothered me is when we talk about black maternal health in the United States, we, how do I want to say this? We somehow don't address the elephant in the room about Western medicine being fundamentally inept, right? Not just the the evils of, you know, operating on, on Black people without anesthesia and the presumptions that we don't feel pain. We don't acknowledge that those same teachings are taught to, to medical students today. It's not about prejudice of people who are entering the medical field as much as they're taught that this is the norm. 
Um, I was to a lot of, you know, I don't know if you all know, but Xavier University of New Orleans is known for having the greatest percentage of students who go black students who go on to get their, their MDs. So we started talking um, about how many of the um, just general diagnostic tests normalize whiteness in ways that are very destructive to black health. Um, one, one quick example is when you look at when you get your pupils dilated, right? The chemicals and the amount of drops that are normal for dilation is for eyes that don't have as much pigment. So what they tend to do is they over, they put more drops in black people's eyes because we have darker pigment. As a result, the effects of the dilation, it lasts longer, it's more severe, um, but it's not even considered that maybe there should be different drops or a different process for people who have some biological differences. Another one is when you look at um, tests that determine like kidney disease. Because of what, the way they're developed, um, what's normal for black people would be considered alarming for, for white people. So in, in this way, you know, you have black people who don't get treatment as early as they need to, or they're not considered... Um, as unhealthy. And the reason I say this is because what's left out of this narrative is how it was traditional African medical practices that allowed black midwives and doulas and, and community members, men and women, to deliver healthy babies during our enslavement, right? So when we talk about the infant mortality rate and things during enslavement, we have to acknowledge that there were healthy babies being, you, ha you had to birth healthy babies mm -hmm. for the institution to operate. So while they tried to paint a picture that there was all this, you know, infant mortality during enslavement, that couldn't have been true because we had to have healthy babies for the institution. And it wasn't white doctors who were, who were performing those births. It was black people. It was black men and women who brought tra uh, traditions from their ancestors in Africa that knew how to care for mothers, fathers, and babies, right? But instead, that whole, <laughs> that whole conversation is left out to paint this picture with no actor to say, oh, well, just for some reason, you know, black women are having issues with maternal health. And it dates back to slavery, and now it exists now, but there was no through line. It was, it was just a very poorly done uh, episode yes. for so many reasons. I, I agree. I totally agree. You know, yeah. Richard, let me say this before, before <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm pass it over to you. An, another thing that really troubled me, uh, we all know from history, and, and, and maybe some folks know more than others, about the uh, sexual abuse that went on by Europeans on, on our women, on black women. And it was horrible. But... By the same token, that trauma is with um, with the men also. If you have a wife on these on this on one of those animals plantations, and you see your wife being taken and, and at night and sexually abused, and you're a man, what do you think that does to a man? The, the whole thing is trauma for both black men and black women. That's a fact. And, and for, for her to paint that in an episode like it was only black women that went through this type of trauma is totally unfair and it's divisive. That's, that, that's the only way I got. I can, that's the only way I can put it. Oh, Richard, go ahead. And, and I was only going to bring up because it just so happened today they were um, playing that episode. So I got to hear. I didn't get to hear it, but I got to hear that section. And for this and we're at this point in the conversation, 
the you know besides um the whole thing of the business of breeding from 1808 what happened and the number what was interesting in hearing the number and after 1808 you're talking about 200,000 Africans that are in the country by 1860 you know 61 you're talking about 4 million so you know, if you don't have no importation and if we have we recognize that breeding as a business to increase the other part that you meant, the value, the property, it's not just property because that's capital asset based yeah. off of credit and debt. Four million going through that level to reemphasize that it had to have an infrastructure to bring in healthy babies in order to increase that capital asset for those. So yes, there is physical direct abuse but there is a system and white women and white doctors weren't at the front line of bringing those babies into existence. That's uh, I think that that um, interpretation could be raised, you know, in relationship to the expanse of in such a short, we're talking about two generations. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and when I pointed out to my students, I, I asked them to, and, and you know, because we have a resurgence of midwives and doulas within our community, because some of us have realized that we can't continue to complain about, you know, the way our oppressors treat us when there are alternatives that we can create and we don't, you know. So I asked my students, you know, what are some ways outside of what you're taught? that you can see how to address the issue, right? Because one of the most destructive aspects is it, it, it is this series. It requires that black people fold themselves into whiteness, right? It, it, it asks that we see ourselves and value ourselves um, in the ways of whiteness, not realizing that it's always been our Africanness that's been the sole of our resistance to our oppression because if, you know, it's, it's accepting the Americanness that allows us to be second-class citizens and subservient and accept these positions. If we get rid of our Africanness, we'll get rid of the, the desire we have to be free. That's how I see it. We're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. You can get involved too, by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Thirty-two. Uh, your time is all right, uh, Doctor Clay. Yeah, okay. I'm good. I'm good. Good, good. We're gonna take a brief break. When we come back, again, you can join the conversation by dialing two one five four nine zero ninety eight thirty two. That's two one five four nine zero nine eight three two. We're in conversation with Professor of Critical Race Sociology at Xavier University in Louisiana, Doctor Charity Clay. The article: How the sixteen nineteen Project Celebrates an Anti African Black American Identity. We'll be right back.
Awakening, Time for an Awakening, with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services if when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global you Black family to join your interconnected you Black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregationists, people devoid thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of 
his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America. We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Raft Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. Let anybody take your manhood. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Sunday edition is 822 here in the city of Philadelphia. Our guest this evening. Professor of Critical Race Sociology at Xavier University in Louisiana, Dr. Charity Clay. Our discussion this evening centers around her article, How the 1619 Project Celebrates an Anti-African Black American Identity. You can get involved in the conversation with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Dr. Clay, before we left... um, the third episode, which dealt with music, you know, it was so many of the, 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 out of the six parts and especially the first four where she could have drew strong connections to our mother continent and to, <laughs> and to our people there. But it was, it was obvious that it was an intention. Well, I don't know whether it was intentional or not. It was avoid it. Just like Richard asked about the rebellions, it was a chance to uh, to really go into those 
and it, it wasn't talked about at all. It just talked about how our ancestors tried to fight on the side of whether it was uh, the North or whether it was uh, uh, the, the settlers when they were uh, fighting for independence. Our ancestors were eager to fight. Now, music. Really <laughs> troubling because it talked about in the beginning the Negro spirituals. <laughs> and it mentioned how the Negro spirituals, and I almost fell out of my chair when I was watching it. It said the Negro no, spirituals was influenced by European hymns. Listen, I... <laughs> I mean, I, cu- I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And if I had known it was going to get worse from that point, I don't know if I would have... It, yeah, it... And, and and to your point, I can't say that any of that is unintentional because you have to do a lot of reaching to remove black history in the United States from the legacy of the continent. That is one of the clearest ways that regardless of language, regardless of religion, regardless of gender or age, that is one of the strongest ways that the diaspora stays connected to the continent. So I can't say it was unintentional to remove the Africanness from black music. That is a surgery <laughs> that um, can, I can't say that it was unintentional, that it, it's, it, it was fundamentally part of the project. You know, it, it, it mentioned it and, it, and it's clear that the overwhelming theme to me was trying to really associate our people with being American because when it talked about the, the fist Jubilee singers and how um, the Jubilee singers uh, sung uh, the Negro spirituals like they were singing opera and they toured all over Europe and different places like that. And it mentioned, it mentioned in the documentary that the queen of England or somebody at that time said, Oh, uh, Negroes finally have classical music because they went there and sung Negro spirituals like they were singing opera and how that, yeah. the, the, you know, that made uh, Negro spirituals somehow have arrived when they got to that point. You know, our people wasn't interested in trying to appeal to whites. No. Uh, and, and it mentioned with Motown, uh, how black artists, and I wrote this down in my notes, how black artists, it was important to them to attract white audiences. It was never important to our people that were singing. It might be now, but at the times they were dealing with, it wasn't important for our people to attract white audiences. Their, their people were enjoying their music, whatever it was. But I think a lot of the management that black folks started getting, uh, Barry Gordy, for one, when he had white folks come and be involved in Motown, it was important for them to attract white audiences. Those entertainers wasn't really interested in attracting white audiences. They were happy uh, appealing and, and performing to with black people. Yeah. Yeah. It, listen, when, when, when someone in the documentary actually talked about how Nina Simone was influenced by white musicians. Oh, I couldn't like, believe it. I, I, <laughs> I don't want to get across you, Dr. Charity, but go go ahead. Go ahead. The the part about it that makes it so um, problematic is because there are people watching who whose introduction to Nina Simone is that 
segment of the film. Yes. Right? It's only for us who have heard Mississippi Goddamn or Young, Gifted, and Black and know the story and the politics and the regalness and, and the complexities of Nina Simone that can hear that and hear the absurdity in that being the major takeaway from who she was. But for those, you know, young people, like some of my students or even younger people or, or anybody who doesn't know who Nina Simone is, I think it's just, it's disrespectful to introduce her legacy as so connected to whiteness. And that, you know, that was, that episode was fundamentally, it was, it was fundamentally problematic for so many reasons. I, I Bridget. You know, um, um, as as y'all are, are are really informing me about these episodes and and what they bring out, and and I go to um, the, the the part in your article because the part of your article what deals with this this segment of our community that are self identifying, you know, whatever you know, the ADOS, FBA. And I'm and and you're make you're 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 making we're making the point that our Africanness is center to the American what we would call the American experience and and I take nothing away from um, and wish to separate that there's two different American experiences there's the African American experience or the American African experience and then the Euro American experience. Um, you know, which has maybe two different value systems. So, just uh, you know, as you deal with your students and and as you went through the episodes, because um, being in conversation with um people who are dealing with their self identifying, because they are recognizing that you know, like we need to um center ourselves in America. How do we center ourselves in America? How do we have be in conversation with people who center themselves in, as being American? And then we're also saying that we have to center ourselves in being African in that American experience. That is there, is there any way, as you see it, that that, uh, amongst, cause these groups are, you know, these people, they're, um, whether, and this here is 1619 project, the film and the book is assisting them in centering themselves, but is to the nativism, and that's what I'm making it clear. Is there any way we can, as you see it, that we can be engaged in conversation um, with these, with that, with those who are doing that, or are we in opposition? <laughs> are we different? Um, <laughs> Even though we come out of the same American experience. So, so here's here's the thing, right? Um, I don't engage them. One of the reasons why I wrote this is so people who are searching for understanding have something to go to. The reason I tend not to engage folks who are, like you say, centering themselves in this pseudo black indigenous identity is because they don't have any foundation. So all they can do is respond to other things that people say, right? But they don't have any foundational basis. So everything they do is reactionary. So if you don't give them directly anything to respond to, they don't have anything to say. I don't see any value in centering 
as an African descended person, as a person who's a descendant of African captives, I don't see, although I'm located here, right, and I understand that I have citizenship, was which is a, which is a, a a a privilege that some of the African descended folks in this in this country do not have. So their experiences presently are different than even some of the things that I experienced. I do not see any value in centering my identity in being American. I can understand that because of my location, some of the cultural ethnicities that I may have are connected to the experience within this landmass, but that's how ethnicity operates, right? You know, I'm, my parents are born in Mississippi. I was raised in Minneapolis and I was raised in Chicago and I spent most of my adult life in Oakland. So who I am as a person is informed by all those locations and the cultures of those locations, right? I can acknowledge that that is important to my identity and still not center my identity as an American, right? Um, because I think that the, the two biggest problems with that is, one, it's on the basis that doesn't exist, Right. Because the, the people who make these claims, they go into these discussions about how slave ships never existed and how all of us, you know, they don't have a common narrative that's worth engaging. What I want to do is show things that are true, that are documented, that are proven, and then allow people to have conversations, hopefully informed and make their decisions. All right. Um and going back to the, 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 the episode on music, there was a discussion um, that I got into with the guy who identified as FBA, and he was trying to say that the Caribbean didn't influence the development of hip-hop, right? He was saying hip-hop is a Black American thing. And, you know, as a hip-hop artist and hip-hop historian, I'm just pointing out that the majority of um, pioneers of hip-hop music, whether you're talking about writers, breakers, DJs, MCs, all of them have ancestry in the Caribbean, right? So for him to make this claim that, no, because they were in the Bronx when it happened, nothing of their Caribbean heritage and ancestry influenced the creation of hip-hop, and then trying to erase the influences of the diaspora from hip-hop to make it American or Black American, I I, I just had to say these, these are the points where I, I can't have conversations with people who are denying history to make a point. Mm. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, l l let me uh, see if a, a couple of these calls want to have a question or comment for our guest. Call it. Call it to you. Let me put them back on hold. Let's go to Newport News. Newport News. Oh no, I'm just listening. All right, let me let me go here to uh, two one five two one five two one five. Let's put them. Maybe step away. Let's let's uh, let's do that. Oh. Um, Dr. Clay, let's uh, let me spin off uh, the documentaries just a little bit and talk about this environment that we're dealing with now, um, where uh, critical race theory or, or white versions of critical race theory 
and other uh, African histories are being attacked at the college level and sometimes at the high school level. Um, we see that uh, the Florida governor uh, is kind of in the forefront because he's, uh, uh, you know, been uh, trying to wipe out the AP course uh, that was teaching uh, black history. Um, but when we look and, and, and see, this goes to what I said earlier when we first started the conversation. It's things not as always uh, what they seem. If you look at the AP course, and I, and I just want your opinion, we look at the AP course and we see, uh, let me describe it in this fashion because I'm not a college professor, so I don't know. I, the course studies, uh, you know, you look at the first few pages and they, they seem like interesting courses, but then you get to some of the pages near the rear and you see queer theory, uh, 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 um, uh, intersectionality, black feminism, like somehow this was part of black culture. H- how does this get mixed in with black culture to be taught to the children? When it, Explain this to me because, I mean, you're on the campuses. You, you see what's going on. You see that, yeah. that black history, period, even without this AP course that was attacked, is under attack because they don't want our children really knowing the history of themselves and also the people that they, we, we, we've been dealing with for three, 400 years. So just talk, sure. just talk about it from I, your perspective as an educator. I, oddly enough, um, tomorrow on um, a platform called Bookman Academy, I have a think piece coming out that, that addresses this very thing. But uh, one thing that I want us to reframe is that the, um, this is not for our children. This is not about our children. And there's a couple reasons. One, we're talking about an AP course, right? Um, most predominantly black high schools in the United States don't even offer AP courses at all, okay. right? So we're getting we're getting distracted in this conversation about a class that's fundamentally for white students. And when black students are in AP classes, they're often in a, an isolated minority in those classes in ways that those experiences are are very hostile and often traumatizing to black students. So the reality is we've gotten pulled into a conversation about a class that the majority of our children won't even have access to. And this is how, you know, whiteness distracts us from things that we should be concerned about into things that really don't have anything to do with us. You know, white people are maybe afraid of their children learning the truth about themselves, but this is, this is not, this is not really um, for our kids, and I don't have any confidence in the class because we have a country where only about 7% of teachers in the public school system are black. So who's going to be teaching black history to children in the United States when the majority of black teachers aren't, right? So I don't have any, I, they can get rid of the course and that would be fine with me because I don't trust it. Right. I also don't trust the public school system to educate black children anyways. Right. Within the context of other things being included, again, the problem is not why they included. It's understanding that they're not going to be taught by an African centered understanding. Okay. Right. Um, 
the problem with intersectionality is the same problem that exists with um, the co-opting of critical race theory. Most people don't understand that when, and, and I, I, in some ways, you know, she's an elder and I respect her, but in some ways I kind of wonder why Kimberly Crenshaw hasn't pushed back against the co-opting of something she created. Because um, many people don't know that intersectionality was intended to be specifically for black women. The fact that it's being used to talk about all these different intersections was never its intent. It was created as a legal framework for black women who were unable to make discrimination claims um, because they were told, you know, when you have a class action suit, you have to have a collective of people. And the case that came was, um, this was some black women who are being um, uniquely discriminated against by, I think it was Ford Motor Company. And they spoke with some lawyers and the lawyers said, you all as black women don't have a claim. You either have to align with white women, bring some white women in and make a claim on gender discrimination or bring some black men in and make a claim on racial discrimination. And what the black women were claiming is that the type of discrimination we're experiencing is unique to us being black women in ways that black men and white women aren't experiencing the same way. But the legal system completely erased their ability to make that claim. So intersectionality was a legal tool, nothing more, right? It was a legal tool to allow black women to be able to make specific claims against discrimination in corporations. What it's been co-opted and morphed into is something that exists now without censoring black women at all, right? You can have a white queer man talk about his intersectionalities, right? And that's, and that's not what it was intended to do. Um, so, so the questions for me is, you know, when we talk about, um, so my question is not whether or not intersectionality belongs in an African-American history or studies course. It's are we going to somehow decenter the blackness of it when we teach it? Because even if we're teaching queer studies, right, the reality is that gender binaries are a Eurocentric construction, so if we're not going to understand that even when you look at African spiritualities and the balance and duality of masculine and feminine, if we're not teaching that, then we're just reinforcing whatever whiteness has created for us in terms of structures of femininity and masculinity, right? So all these topics can be taught from a position that centers um, African um, scholars, but that's not what's going to be taught. Right. So my issue is never what's what's in the curriculum. It's whether or not the curriculum is going to perpetuate whiteness or whether it's going to be liberatory in ways that can 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 free our youth. And I just don't expect the public school system, even even the intent, the instances where it may where individual teachers may want to. There's no space for that in the public school system. The school system is not it's not intended to teach liberation or emancipation or critical thinking or freedom. Um, that's why elite white people send their kids to private school, right? In the city of New Orleans, I think 80, maybe even 90% of white students go to private school, <clears throat> right? And the majority of black students here go to charter schools that are privatized. And, you know, the, the literacy rate is embarrassingly low. Okay. So the fact that we're worried about an AP studies course when the majority of black children in the public schools can't read and write and do math at grade level, it shows how easily we're distracted into things <laughs> that white people tell us should be important to us. 
Richard, I think you mentioned it before about playing chess. Uh, <laughs> some folks playing chess and we playing checkers. But go, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, both of y'all because the, uh, where we are in the conversation for me, as I I look through you know the article and and listen to you know what was presented in the um, the documentary and and what was presented in the text, and then hearing um, Dr. Clay how you've been working with your students, um, you know, in relationship to assisting them to think critically and expand to be able to do it. It, it goes to something you always raise, Elliot, as far as the communication system. Because if we say this is a propaganda tool and it's these mediums, the book, the the film, the documentary, the children book, these are all um, tools of propaganda to push this particular narrative. Um, how do, you know, what is it, how do you see um, um, black communication systems, you know, other than what we're trying to do here, time for awakening, um, really addressing this, uh, is is there any thoughts to yeah, that come? Have you had any thoughts in relationship to how do we? I mean, you you're you're, you're writing an article in Black Agenda Report. You know, you're you're doing something with you said Bookman. You know, on a, a platform. Uh, how, what thoughts do you have for us in relationship to that? And how do we um, come back? this to, to get a more fuller narrative if if there, if you have any it's difficult you know the the united states propaganda machine is undefeated it's the reason why you know we a lot of us a lot of us in the united states think that the united states is the center of the african diaspora right so it's and the reason being is because Blackness is profitable for the United States. So there's always going to be space um, to profit when you're selling a certain type of blackness. The problem is a lot of black people who have platforms are presenting the kind of blackness that's going to be profitable, right? You don't get Hulu and all these funders to, to back something like the 1619 Project if it doesn't fit that narrative, right? I think that's one thing. I, I wish we were just more critical of understanding that in 2023, quote-unquote, Black media is primarily created for white audiences. Um, so continuing to have platforms that don't, um, I, I have I have a difficulty with figuring out how to combat it because it's hard to combat capitalism, right? And I say this because there's very little original thought on social media because everyone sees that if I do this trend or if I buy into this narrative or perpetuate this conversation that's already being had, that's where I get the attention. That's where I get the revenue. That's where I get, you know, uh, the status. This is why gender wars in the black community are popular on social media, because I'm going to get more attention saying negative things about black men than proclaiming and affirming how much I love and care for and need and respect them. Those aren't the things that are going to go quote unquote viral. So I think for me, unfortunately, I have to remember that the diaspora exists outside of social media. Most of what I do is in person. And when you do more things in person, 
you you feel better about being you know African in the United States or in the diaspora because the internet will fool you into thinking that we are um, a doomed people, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, it's not letting the internet be my primary source of anything. I tell my students, my goal is to make you smarter than your timeline. My goal is to make you smarter than your social media and encourage you all to build community face-to-face, right? My students are in class with each other twice, three times a week, and they never talk to each other outside of class or inside of class. And I say, how are we going to build community if you all literally sit here for 16 weeks and don't learn each other's names? Don't check in on each other. Don't say, how are you doing? How is, you know, what is it like where you're from? Or just start these conversations. So for me, I think we have to get back to our ancestral ways of communication, which are communal, which are in person. Um, Because trying to compete with this propaganda machine, um, we're taking away the advantages we would have. Just like maroon communities, right? Maroon communities knew that their advantages were guerrilla tactics. They knew that if they fought, you know, face-to-face on the plantations, they would lose. So they looked and saw what their advantages were and and used those to their benefit. I don't think that, you know, we can, quote-unquote, win the war on social media. But in person, um, so many amazing organizing things are happening daily throughout the diaspora that that's kind of where I use my focus. So I connect with people here, but my goal is to always you know, um, do things face to face. Well, Richard, that's an interesting perspective. Yes. Yes. Let's, Important. let's go back to, uh, Newport news again. Uh, Newport news. Oh, Newport news. I'm trying to get this thing to work. Don't hang up yet. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm, I can get an echo for somewhere, but I got my stuff cut off. Uh, try it now, because you have two things. Me? Try it now, because you had two things up. You okay, still yeah, have I'm trying to turn it off. I have no idea what the echo is. Let me call back in and get it right now. Okay. All right. I'll hold, I'll hold it for you. <laughs> um. How do you respond to that, Elliot, as far as, I mean, you you really informed me about the the importance of media, uh, a media system, media communication um, in, in relationship to this whole thing. And and we see that this narrative that's being, and it's not brought up, you know, well, how, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, I, I agree with what Dr. Clay said Um and and I'll just go a little bit further. Uh, we need independent sources to get these messages out because if we adopt European values, and when I say European values, I'm talking about to put money and things over anything else. Mm-hmm. See, that, that's a European ethos or a European value. And if we, yeah. if we adopt those principles then it's going to be difficult for us to move forward. And see, a lot of these folks know that, uh, you know, uh, man, you can get black folks to do anything, just throw some money at them. And they have been doing that. We we just got to, and it's it's not impossible. We just got to develop independent 
uh, sources to reach one another and move forward from that. You know, listen, it can be done, and, and we talked about this example several times, Richard. If you remember when they had the first Me and Man March in 95, uh, and all of those men were rallied down there, 1.5 million, 2 million people down there at the mall, and they didn't use television. They used black radio to do it. And at the time, they had independent uh, DJs, the conscious DJs that were spreading the message. They was playing music, but they were spreading the message. And the white power structure, be a Democrat or Republican, said we can't have these people using the telecommunications airwaves to do that. So they pre- they passed that Telecommunications Act that broke. The- 1966. I mean, 1996. Yes. Yep. That broke the back of black media. That allowed these white conglomerates to buy it up, and then they sub- they substitute all the conscious DJs with Steve Harvey and other people, <laughs> and they they on in every city, laughing and joking seven days a week. Now listen, I, I can take a little joke here and there and a little laugh, but it's what's so funny about our condition? Were you laughing and joking seven days a week, and never talk about anything of any substance? But this was done uh, uh, intentionally to break the back of communications among black people. They already know that you don't have any TV. You don't control any TV networks. And I'm not talking about own and all because they don't they not talking about anything. But uh, they, they know that black radio was used to rally people. They know that. So they changed laws to break the back of black media. But the thing is, with the advent of this social media now. It, messages can be gotten out here, but the only thing here it is it creeps right it creeps in with this social media about branding and uh uh me being able to develop my following and it, mm-hmm. it translates into money see th- this stuff is it's a it's a poison to our people richard and you know i I think that you agree dr clay that we we it's ways to get around this you said person to person contact is the way that you use to get around it and encouraging people to talk with one another face-to-face, which is good, which is excellent. But uh, it is ways that we can use these mediums to get our messages out here, to, to uh, you know, to, to spread conscious messages, to spread beneficial news and other things. It's, it's other no, media. I agree. I agree 100%. You know, like you said, having independence is key, you know, because the 1996 um, Telecommunications Act, that, that, that was also the death of hip-hop, right? That's fundamentally when you see a change in what was a grassroots, you know, political, musical culture in, you know, um, the desegregation era completely commodified, you know, Um it's independence, right? Now, what I've also realized is that platforms like these are, they take hold stronger outside of the United States, right? Mm. Um, that's what I've also noticed because uh, folks outside, they are seeking this type of information. The United States is the only place where black celebrity culture drives what the idea of blackness is you know i was in columbia a couple weeks ago um senegal is a place i go often and i've not been to any place in the diaspora where black celebrity is a thing that drives people's interactions as much as it does in the united states um 
So I think that one of the issues we have is... Not to cut in front of you, but what what do you think that is? Plain and simple, what do you think that is that that causes that type of mindset? It's the money. Okay, okay, okay. it's It's the money. It's the idea that, you know, black people can make money being entertainers right Mm. it doesn't add value to our communities but individually we can make money being entertainers i don't you know and and because we don't control our own you know media channels white people are choosing our spokespeople from the celebrity class yes so the people that are seen to represent us are celebrities because we don't i think you know, having our own independent media would be that would fundamentally change the game, you know, because um, but that's what we need to grow. We need to grow into, you know, um, having the value system being changed. But but the reality is, I think that sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit in understanding that there are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, aren't going to care about black liberation. Aren't going to care about retaining our Africanness or understanding our ancestry. And I think sometimes we measure our success by whether or not we can convert people who Mm. don't see things this way um, and don't acknowledge that um, there are a lot of people who are tapped in and tuned in and who are listening or are paying attention. Um, (laughs) So that's what I have to, and, and I say that because personal interactions always remind me of that, right? Because on social media, an algorithm is going to control what I see. Face to face, I'm interacting with people who um, are affirming and reaffirming some of the things I say. If we can get our own social media channel, our social media network, um, it would change the game. But I think we have to remember or acknowledge that a lot of, a lot of people just, they don't care about this and that's okay. <laughs> wow. Dr. Clay, listen, it was good to have you with us this evening to, share, to spend some time. Uh, you got a book coming out, I think, don't you? I got a bunch of stuff coming out. Um, oh, no, you can put it in. That's it. That's it. Knowledge production in the process. Um, I got I got two main projects. One is a more expansive project about Maroonage as proto Pan Africanism. So what I'm doing is looking at different maroon communities. Um, that escaped from different colonial empires. So, of course, I'm going to talk about AET. I'm uh, going to talk about Colombia, um, Suriname. Um, but just looking at how one of the, the things that, that connects all maroon societies is Africanness. And you're talking about people, African people transported to the Americas who fundamentally retain and depend on their African spirituality, architectural genius, political systems, war tactics, et cetera, to self-emancipate. Um, and I'm hoping that introducing that project kind of combats this FBA and this ADOS attempts to um, deny and erase the Africanness as the center uh, of our resistance here in the United States. Um, 
And then another project I'm working on, it came out of a podcast series that I did a couple years ago, but I'm working on a book about this framework I've created called the uh, Black Protest Industrial Complex. Um, And it fundamentally just kind of breaks down how emerging out of the 2020, you know, 2020 was kind of the, the create, well, not the creation, but it was when we saw this, this idea that whiteness is able to capitalize off of black protests. 2020 is a great example of how, you know, since the civil rights movement, whiteness has been figuring out, you know, how can we make money off of black resistance? So I'm working on, I'm working on those, those two major books. Yeah, well, uh, I got your number now, so we're going to stay in touch. I, I want to uh, kind of get uh, a lot of your work, a lot of your articles, so I can post them to uh, the Time for Awakening website, um, even links to your podcast when you do it, uh, and, post, sure. and post these things and share a lot of the information, because that's what it's about. That's and In fact, that's what we were just talking about. That's what it's about, us trying to work together to get positive messages out here to our people and to uh, people that want to do something about it. Um, Definitely. Again, thanks for being with us. Uh, looking looking towards more coming from you. Um, and it was just great to have you uh, share with us this evening. Thank you all for having me. Thanks so much. Yes, it's been a, been a pleasure. I'm, if, I, if I could, I'll come and sit in that class, but, you know, <laughs> right now... <laughs> Plus, go to Mardi Gras. But, uh. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, thanks for being with us, Dr. Click. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. You all have a great evening. All right. Peace. You too, man. Peace. Take care now. Peace. Uh, we'll be right back. For an awakening, time for an awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. 
roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global Kometsu Black family, to join your interconnected Kometsu Black communities, escape the digital plantation now, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com. Store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. I am an applicant. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again. Because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who will destroy them in America. There are fools in this, this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with that marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you'd better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I am an American. Ladies and gentlemen, the death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions.
probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a, a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separate disposition is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years. In this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issues, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Uh, Richard, Yes. Interesting conversation with uh, Dr. Clay, and uh, I hope to have him on again soon uh, to kind of uh, push these things a little bit further down the uh, the road. Um, yes. And, I, and and listen, I'd like to get her assessments of because she said that she uh, instructed her students to uh, uh, kind of look at the series and come back with uh, how they see how they seen. Uh, you know what they what they experience, and I'm right. kind of interested to kind of see uh, even if they come on themselves and talk about it. That would that would be kind of interesting to uh, get their point of view. 
be great, you know, expand the dialogue. One thing that uh, as we were dealing with, you know, this, the whole thing of, of the media and, and dealing with uh, the, because it's obviously, you know, when we look at these, ser- these series and what is, can you say, propagandizing and the, the effect of it, because it has international effect, right? As it relates, it has political and economic effect. Um, besides the cultivation of le- leadership and identity, um, the point of how much we have to become more informed to be engaged in a dialogue. Because what I heard um, in the series that came out here is the, the dimensions that were missing. And you can only know those dimensions that are missing based off of our study. Yes. And then being in communication with each other, you know, um, and I think that that's important, uh, you know, that we can be able to um, ex- to incorporate both of them to give them. So it isn't just propagandize. It is truly informing and being in a dialogue of now. Well, and, and it comes down to it. What side are you on? I mean, um, what are you supporting? Who are you supporting? But if we're not dealing with the same level of information, we, we, we're not really in dialogue with each other. Yeah, you know, uh, Bridget, and, and there's one, there's another part in there that I wanted to mention to her, and it it, uh, it kind of got by me. And it was uh, because uh, she went into, and I'm talking about the, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, mm-hmm. went into the meeting that Sherman had with our ancestors down there. Oh, you did? Okay. But when she, because it was in the piece dealing with uh, justice, I think that was the last part, and reparations was mentioned. And when she described a meeting with our ancestors, um, she said that they wanted land. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't all, you know, half of that statement, don't just say half of that statement. It don't, she didn't include the rest of the statement in that. If you remember, Richard, in fact, I I had the uh, thing right in front of me. I don't know what it, I got all these papers on the desk. If you remember when they when he answered them and asked them what they wanted, they not only said that they wanted land, they said they wanted to live by themselves. Right. He said we can't live with white folks because the, he said the hatred of white folks of uh, for our people is too great. You remember what they said? Yeah. But when <clears throat> when they talked about it on the documentary, they only gave half of the statement saying that they only wanted land. That's not mm-hmm. all that the ancestors said that they wanted. It said they wanted land. Uh, they wanted to cultivate it and pay them for it because they didn't want nothing free. And mm-hmm. it said that they wanted to live by themselves mm-hmm. or away from white people because the, 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 uh, they asked them, would you like to live among white folks? And they said, no. You remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said it would be about 100 years. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Well, I guess this was wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Maybe they thought a hundred years, but this stuff is uh is is going on and it ain't stopping. You, Richard, I want to share something else. It was um uh, because when uh she only described half of that story with when that, that meeting at the White House uh and kind of insinuated that our ancestors said, "Oh no, we don't want to go anywhere. We want to stay here." You, I don't think well, you read the essays. You didn't see the documentary. Mm-mm. And you remember what uh, Dr. Clay said, that she was, you know, she was taken back. She said at that point she didn't want to see any more. You remember when she said right. that? Yeah. Well, let me read what happened at that meeting. Because 
I read the transcript of uh, what Lincoln said to them, that they needed black people, the ones that leave here, they needed black people that are capable of thinking as white men. You remember mm-hmm. when he said that? Well, let right. me, let me, this is that whole scenario. Now, l- l- check this out, Richard. It says in August of 1862, Lincoln invited five prominent black men to the White House. The first delegation invited on such terms. The topic was simple, that white and blacks cannot coexist and that separation is the most expedient means to peace. Lincoln encouraged these men to rally support for an exodus. Now, that's what he instructed them to do. The documentary Mm -hmm. says that the men said, oh, no, we don't want to do that. We want to be here. But that's not historically accurate. Because they did do something when they left there. Now, this was, now, because there's some dates here. This was in August 1862, Richard. On the night of December 31st, 1862, a day before he issued the Emancipation Proclamation in America, uh, Abraham Lincoln signed a contract with Bernard Koch, an entrepreneur and Florida cotton planter. Their agreement used federal funds to relocate 5,000 former enslaved uh, people from the United States to Cow Island, which is off the coast of Haiti. Nearly a month before he signed the contract with Koch, during his second annual message to Congress, Lincoln had proposed a constitutional amendment to colonize African Americans outside the United States. The Mm -hmm. amendment included federal compensation for slave owners who would lose their human property due to emancipation. Now, he met with them in August of 1862. He signed this agreement with this guy, Koch, in December of 1862. On January 1st, 1863, a day later, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm. Now, it says here, Lincoln was undeterred by complaints from Douglas and some African-American leaders. On April 14, 1863, about 450 uh, uh, blacks were sent to the island. But after only a year, nearly 25% of them had died due to poor nutrition, disease. Um, Near the same time, the results of Lincoln's investigation into the uh, Chiriqua land proved uh, that the coal there was worthless. And there mm-hmm. was also a small matter that Costa Rica claimed ownership of the part of the Thompson's land, the, 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 that land where he was going to send them in Central America. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was minerals there that they thought that they could use blacks to kind of uh, mm-hmm. be their surrogates in those areas. But they seen mm-hmm. they seen that the coal was worthless. But the reason I'm reading this because they had managed after that meeting to gather about 450 of our people that wanted to leave here. Right. The goal was 5,000. So this mm-hmm. was going to be ongoing. But that mission there that he had failed. Let me read it. It says by the time the Ocean Ranger reached the Cow Islands in early May because it left on April the 14th, 1863. When it reached the islands in early May, at least 30 of the black passengers had died from smallpox. Mm. 
A second ship was supposed to follow the Ocean Ranger with building and living supplies that never set sail. Koch, the self-appointed superintendent of the island, uh, the island of black settlers, told them about the living conditions but deceived them. Instead of the homes that they were promised, the family set on the ground in small huts made of palmetto and, and brush. Koch offered wages in a self-printed currency, which workers were obliged to spend on exorbitant price food and goods in a, a kind of company shop. There was also a no-work, no-rotation policy. No, excuse me. There was also a no-rations no policy. When the uh, black workers threatened revolt, uh, Koch fled. So he left them basically there. Mm -hmm. It says, by 1863, realizing that Liberia, Haiti, and the Cherokee lands were not reasonable for resettlement, Liberia was considered too great a distance to relocate a large number of freed slaves. Lincoln mentioned moving the whole colored race to the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. So all of these things were being discussed by Lincoln the whole time. Right. It says four days before his death, before his assassination, speaking to General Benjamin Butler, Lincoln still pressed on deportation as the only peaceable solution to America's race problem. And this was a quote. I can hardly believe that the South and the North can live in peace unless we get rid of these Negroes. I believe that it would be better to export them all to some other land or to some other country. I'm sorry. So, you know, this myth that some black people believe that Lincoln was some type of friend of black people all the while he, it would, he, he was working with his brethren on both sides of the aisle, even then to mm -hmm. get rid of black folks. Mm-hmm. It was a strange relationship that they had with our people. They didn't want them here, but they needed them here because they yeah. wanted to exploit them. Mm -hmm. But they didn't want them really being free walking around society. Mm -hmm. Or building on their own. Hey, exactly. I think that they really thought, and this is just me, Richard, I th you know, because you see what evidence happened with uh, some native tribes and especially in the islands and other areas where they basically worked them to death mm -hmm. because they wasn't a strong enough, they weren't as strong as African-American people that to be honest, that's what it was. And mm -hmm. I think that they, I think that they <clears throat> thought that they would do the same to black folks. They never mm -hmm. thought that this situation would uh, be like it is now. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, um, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's the level of confidence that we need to have uh, that we can do that, you know, in spite of being identified. I don't, I don't even know how to place it, Elliot, because, um, you know, I started out um, with, with Dr. Clay in making this distinction because when, when we're making ourselves Native Americans, we're we're putting ourselves and and this go, this is a long history where we're like uh, children under a parent and we're always looking for the parent to to feed or to provide um, you know to position us um, for our own safety 
um, compared to when we're, you know, as you say, um, those those gentlemen, Dr. Granger, you know, when they said what we, we, we want is to be able to have the land and to be left alone. That required, you know, um, and even other places when they decided to go to um, Kansas, you know, what they called the Exodus period, mm. uh, or create um, communities. Th- those were people who were saying, like, we're willing to work this through. We have a we have a plan, and we know it ain't going to be easy, but we can make it happen. The example you gave, Lincoln set up for failure when he asked the white boy to be. I mean, he, he already had a plan for him to be the overseer. Exactly, exactly. The white boy printed the money, <laughs> and then used the same process, like in order to eat, in order to eat. You got the money I print. You got to spend that. And if you don't work, you don't get no food. You don't get nothing. So what, 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 but this is something that is set up compared to those who said, I'm making this move on my own. Out of my own, out of my own initiative. And I think that, um, and what she, um, Dr. Clay, was saying, that own initiative comes out of, 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 of a confidence and centeredness of their own identity as Africans, which we can, she characterized as being maroon, the maroonage. And that turn in Denmark, VC, they, they didn't, you know, or the Seminole Wars, those were people who seen themselves in their own identity, not as an American. But as the people who wanted to be liberated or wanted to be able to be left alone under their own auspices. The people, I mean, those people even went into the swamps. You you know, some people would say, how could you live in the swamps? Black folks moved into the swamps. Did they not make a living out of that? <laughs> they had children. They fed themselves. Other people would say that was a harsh environment. I mean, I don't know if I'm making sense that way. I mean, it's just this this thing of self-initiative compared to that we're under somebody else and the identify. And then this thing of that this is being prop these projects, the 1619 Project. The, I mean, whether they intentionally mean it or not, that that's what they're saying, that we don't have no confidence. One thing Dr. Clay said that I didn't know, like that AP class, that she gave a different Point of view. I, I know it. I, I didn't realize that either. <laughs> it's not surprising, I mean, though. Right. You know, I mean, the intent, like, and we're arguing, like, we're, I mean, th- this goes to what's the facts we're operating from? Because we do say we were, we, that in our area, when she said in, in, in New Orleans, how many students, um, wouldn't even be able to take the AP class. Yes, I automatically reflected about Philadelphia. Yeah, because she said that they can't really read on grade level. And if, right. you, if you remember when we had the brothers on a couple of weeks ago, and I read off them stats about Philadelphia, I think over sixty-five percent wasn't even reading uh, at sixth grade level or eighth grade, something like that. Yeah, so they, no, they, they wouldn't be they able would. to be taking AP those AP courses. 
So it's, you know, these kind of, these conversations and these perspectives in relationship to what is, what is it, as she said, what is our racial realism and how race is permanent? Because we are not, not reading because of our own lack of uh, ability to learn. It's the resource depravity that's creating the con- social condition to where we're not engaging because we got a history where we did. I mean, it came off the plantations and went 80% reading from zero. Hmm. It was, I mean, four generations, three generations ago. So in, it just, in a limited number of years too, Richard, right. before the plug was pulled. Right. Let's go back and see if the, the call is on now. Let's go to 215. 215. Good evening, Brother Elliot. Good evening, Brother Richard. Yes, sir. And uh, I, I'm doing well, and, and, and hello to the top of the list audience. Brother Elliot, I want to start talking about my subject. I want to apologize to you, Brother Richard, and uh, Professor Clay, because when you, y'all came to me, Brother Elliot, I'm, I'm going to be real with y'all. I was... I know I enjoyed her time on there, but what happened like, for a brief moment, I just kind of like dozed off for just a brief moment, but I, I dozed off just enough where I missed her when y'all came to me. And I do regret that I did, did have a lot of one to share with Dr. Clay because she was a very riveting guest and stuff, man. And I, I guess I've been running around all day shop. I was just so tired. I do apologize, Ellie, because I definitely wanted to, 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 to talk to Dr. Clay because she was a very interesting guest with some good information. You know, let me say this, Brother Ellie and Brother Richard. You know, the 1619 Project, and I'd be the first to admit, you know, to you and Rich and the Tavling Listen, I hadn't like, like, I only, I've been kind of looking at this 1619 Project from like the red, if you get my drift, brother Ellie. You know what I mean? I, I, I mean, I've read a little excerpts, but I really didn't know it entailed all that misinformation or ha- or ha- incomplete, like you said. If you're gonna when she's when Nicole had Jones mentioned about the land, she didn't include that other part. So I didn't know that it was all those incompletes and stuff. And that's why I was glad that y'all had. Dr. Clay on to bring it to, to, to clarify that to the town from Wicked Listen or this how it was constructed in a way like you said to be palatable to white people. You know what I mean? See, I didn't even know all that, but I'm yeah, glad well, that you know that. Yeah, well, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't necessarily misinformation, but mm-hmm. it, it it wasn't all of the information. It and, right. and, and like uh, like Dr. Clay said, and like you just said, it it, it, it was made where it was palatable to white people. Hmm. And, 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 I, and I noticed that with a lot of our people, because you know me, as a student at Honorable Elijah Muhammad, you know, we even go, in, not the 1619 was an uh, important time, but we go back even further, because we, we talked about Honorable Elijah Muhammad about 15, the year 1555, when a British slave owned a devil named Sir John Hawkins, that's what he was, a devil, he uh, he, 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 he came over and to, our, to, our, to the, the diaspora with a slave ship named Jesus, and he you know, brought our people over here in the most horrendous conditions. He was one of the first devils that went over the way before 1619. So we go even deeper than than 60. We go back to, as far as back as 1555. But you know, when the Hannah Jones, you know, did the thing about 1619, and, and like you say, when she didn't come with the whole truth in a lot of these cases, it's almost. I know this might be a bad example, brother Ellie and brother Richard, but it's almost kind of tantamount because you ask yourself sometimes. And I you even mentioned this, Dr. Clay. You said, well, who is she trying to make this palatable for? Who is she trying to, you know, appeal to? She's not trying to appeal to the black people. I think you said it to that effect. Am I right, Elliot? 
I might have the word, your word in the loop, but you get my point, right? Mm. Well, it's almost, to me, Brother Ellen, it's almost a comparison I can make, Brother Ellen and Brother Richard, is with uh, another of our great poets, God rest my soul, Toni Morrison. Why, for the life of me, I'm 61 years old, and Lord's world, I'll be 62 in July this year. Why Toni Morrison is a well-learned sister she is, what made her come out, let her come out of her mouth that Bill Clinton, she felt as though Bill Clinton was the first black president. I mean, I, I don't even know how she could even, you understand what I'm saying, Ellen Richard, I don't even know how she could even let that come out of her mouth. Bill Clinton has never done anything from the time he was the racist governor of Arkansas on to, to the presidency that he did anything that even, even make you even think that he had anything to be called the, the first black president for the time even before he insulted Sister Soldier. Because you see, a lot of people forget, Elliot, the dastardly thing that Bill Clinton did back when he was governor when he was, when, when stuff, when he, when, he, when he first ran for president and stuff, before he even ran for president, he went back and, and, and to show his white folks, his white brother, and that he's tough on the ends. He went back there and executed a retarded black man who had the mind of a of a three year old child or whatever. That's how he did. The man committed murder, but he was definitely and, and not in his right mind. But Bill Clinton felt as though he had to go back and show white boy his white boys that he, he tough on the ends. So he had this man executed. He oversaw his execution. So how could any you know reasonable black woman or black man, especially my Tony Morrison stature, even come let that come out of her mouth that he was the first black president. You understand what I'm saying? Well, it, 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 it boggles the mind, man. You know, I guess, again, this man. I guess he ahead, did. I guess she did it because he was playing the saxophone on Arsenio Hall show. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I get, I think the tongue in cheek. Cause I kind of, I was saying that to myself too, as a, as a tongue in cheek response too. I mean, because because if you look at just his actions alone, there's <laughs> no way in the world you could even say that this guy was some kind of friend of black people. You know, so I, I say that I kind of bring, bring that parallel with with with, with uh, Nicole Hannah Jones. Who is she trying to appeal to? You know, what I mean, if, not, if you're not gonna bring, if you're gonna do a documentary like that, come with like you said, come with the whole truth. Don't come with that half truth. You know, what I mean, it's, it's almost like the, the stupid the comment that, and you expect to see, see when certain people say certain things, you don't even get no response because you know you expect that. So, so you, but, you, but, it, but it raised an eyebrow when someone like the Hulk, Cole Hannah Jones or Tony Morrison make a statement or do something that's that's totally ridiculous in a sense because you expect somebody that's conscious like that and well learned. But when you like when an idiot like um, uh, what's that fool, uh, um, the doctor? What's his name? You know, the Surgeon Journal. You know, to Ben Carson. Oh, okay. When he made the when, when he made the asinine statement that black people, when they were slaves, they was hardworking people and they worked hard and they were and he he, he framed it like they was, we was getting a salary. So remember the like, the infamous remarks he made. See, when an idiot like that say something, I don't even raise an eyebrow. You expect somebody like a ben, like a like a Ben Carson to say something stupid like that because he's an idiot. But when you see somebody like a Nicole Hannah Jones. Tony Morrison, somebody that's well learned, you got to ask yourself because sometimes you'll be critical in your thinking. They say, "Why are you making them statements?" Well, I mean, who are you trying to appeal to? You know what I mean? Could you, could you start? It, it raises the eyebrow if you, if you get my point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so, so that's what I'm saying. Again, when the Ben Carson or or, or somebody like a. Uh, uh, what's the other, uh, uh, what's that other fool that, that always talks crazy all the time? That that Paris Denard, when people like that make them kind of statements, again, it don't raise an eyebrow because it's powerful, of course, for them. But when some of our so-called well-learned poet laureates or scholars make them kind of stupid statements, it, 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 it can't help but raise the eyebrow because you figure they know better and stuff. And like they like the old saying, when you know better, you do better. 
So, you know, they just something that I, that I thought I'd you know, bring to you and Brother Rich in the time from waking listening to the audience, you know. But, uh, yeah, again, and I thank y'all for having Dr. Clint. I hope y'all have on again because, like I said, y'all have on again. I definitely want to, you know, be able to converse with the sister because she's dynamic and stuff, man. And, and, those, and she's teaching our students down there. She got them on the right path, and she, 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 she's getting the word, word out to them, educating them, enlightening their minds and stuff like that. And this is what this, this is what people like the Ron DeSantis of the world and, the, and, the, and these other bigots fighting against. They, they, they hate a sister like that that's going to bring the truth. She's not going to enlighten our people, our young people with, and, and with their fertile minds with that BS. She's going to give them the truth and, ho- and hopefully they'll grow with it. And that's why people like the Ron DeSantis of the world and his ilk, they don't want this stuff taught because they know a sister like her is going to bring the truth to our people and everything, you know. So I thank y'all for having her on because, again, it, it, it's, it's definitely important, especially in this day and time, with the misinformation that continually comes out to, for our people. So, again, I thank you and Brother Richard for having uh, Dr. Clay on. I'm looking forward to you know, for y'all having her on again because, she's again, she's a dynamic sister, Brother Ellen, Brother Richard. Thank you for letting me express myself. Talk to you. <laughs> Put me on mute, Brother Elliot, and I listen to the remainder. All right. Thank you, sir. Richard. Yes, yes. Come to enter another program, man. I'm looking forward to uh, that program that you're going to set up probably in in uh, April sometime. It ought to be interesting. Uh, and we ought to have some interesting guests lined up for the next uh, two, three weeks, which would be good. Mm-hmm. Um, looking forward to the next open forum that we have too, Richard, because uh, some of the stuff that didn't happen this past week um, with uh, Abrams over there monitoring elections and uh, – Kamala Harris touring the continent. You know, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot going on right under black folks' nose. Yeah, yeah. and you you really don't know what's happening here. What what's going on? Hey, we 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 know what's going on. You know, these boys they 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 running. I mean, they just they just lost three. One boy pull out his him and his boys. He called a bank. What's that? Uh, San Francisco Valley Bank. He called his bank, his boys, and said, look, pull out. They pull out their money. That bank go down and, what, three, four other banks go with it? Mm-hmm. Just on, just, you know, and that's why the regulators are supposed to be sitting there, you know, watching them. And they're saying, well, they wasn't watching them enough. So it, it's, it, you know, it's, we, we, we just need to... Um, be paying more attention. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, well, I'll be looking forward to the next time we are going to open forum and discuss some of these issues. Yeah. Uh, before we leave tonight, just give the lineup on time for an awakening media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogues on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, later on, in the week on Thursday, uh, Mississippi on the move, the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi, Mississippi with Brother Patrick Lumumba. That's Thursdays from seven to eight. Fridays time for an awakening is back from eight until, and Saturday seven to nine. Elders of Sankofa with Dr. Janine James as host. So I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon 
Children. To save the children. 